us to imagine that we attend, that we are attending a play or a musical, some kind of live performance, and we are mesmerized by what's taking place on stage. We look and we're in awe, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it is going excellent. But even as we are looking at what is taking place on stage, we, we, we go another time, and everything is going well, and say, let's take a peek backstage. And as we peek up the curtain backstage, it's an all-out brawl. Right? So upstage is, like on stage, everything is wonderful, everything is great, things are going well. We take a peek backstage, and the cast is fighting, there's punches being thrown, one guy's in a headlock, there's utter chaos over there. Right? It's as if you're looking at me right now, and everything is wonderful, everything is great, but we look up into the nest up there, and we just see uh, Jacob beating Eric Archer up. Right? Well, that's kind of the scene that we see in Exodus chapter 32. God has just laid out instructions for how he will come and set up his tent among his people. I will be with you. I will dwell with you. In fact, after chapters 32 to 34, we continue with the plans for the tabernacle. We continue with the building of the tabernacle. And it is as if this section of Scripture is right smack dab in the middle of God's gracious plan, and yet it is so different. Last week we saw the grace and the beauty in the tabernacle, and here we see the sin and the destruction of the people of God. Let's read Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received gold from their hand and fashioned it into a, with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And they rose up to play.
Moses has been gone 40 days, and the people are restless. 40 days, and the people have had enough. 40 days, and they're ready to throw in the towel. He is in the presence of God on their behalf, receiving instructions from God, and they can't wait any longer. Let's set this scene and look at the main idea here. Moses is on the mountain, and the people are making and worshiping an idol. They are turning away from the God who rescued them. And Moses remains near. It's as if they forgot how important Moses was or his love for them. The way they talk about Moses is strange. Look what they say. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. As for this Moses... One commentator said, it's almost like they're saying, oh yeah, what's his name? You know that guy that let us out one time? You mean the one who was appointed by God? The one who stood up for, to Pharaoh on your behalf? The one who was confirmed at the mountain and you heard it? That one? Is that the Moses you're talking about? Saying, oh, this Moses, as for him, whatever, whatever happened to him, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. This, oh, what, oh, what's his name? Oh, what's his name? Is in the presence of God, and they're acting like he doesn't even exist. So while he's gone, while he's away, the people play, and they set up an idol, shaped like a young bull or an ox, and they begin to use that to worship. And this passage can give us whiplash because we've just seen the graciousness of God in the tabernacle plans and God decided to come and dwell with his people and now we have them making their own plans. One thing we talked about last week is that God gets to set the standard. God gets to set the rules for how he is approached, how he is worshipped, and now we have the people coming up with their own ideas and approaching God on their own terms. The result is rebellion. They basically mob rush Aaron and say, this is what you're going to do. And he does. And they give all their gold and they make an idol. And this is probably the lowest point in the history of the Israelites. They're at the mountain, being led out, instructed. They have the pillar there, and yet they fail in the most spectacular way. This is gross idolatry. In one quick move, we go from seeing the grace and perfection of God to the rebellion against the Most High. They're breaking at least two of the Ten Commandments. Most agree that this is not them setting up a completely different God. But... This is us trying to worship God in a way that he has not prescribed, breaking the second commandment and attributing an image to him and saying that this is what he is like, breaking the third commandment, taking his name in vain, misusing the name of God. Could lump the first in there because of the way that they describe it. 
Idols in the ancient Near East were often seen more to connect people to a god than to be the god itself. So we have them making an idol to go to God in worship. They're saying this is the one who led them out of Egypt, which is wrongly representing the God who saved them. So it's gross idolatry. And what's more is it spat in the face of what we talked about last week. They worshipped according to what they thought was right. God had these spectacular plans, had this golden ark, and yet they have this calf that was made of gold. The tabernacle had an altar, and here they built their own altar. God alone gets to set the standard for how he is worshipped. It is a gracious thing. We're not left to guess, but here they presume that they can come. It revealed their lack of trust in the plan and revelation of God. This seemed better. It seemed right. And the people were on board. Let's just look at some of the, what their self-produced worship led to. It led to people giving a ton of costly things. It led to them being unified. Later on we see that they're singing and they're, they're worshiping together. They're, they're together. Or we could say it like this. The tithes have never been better. The people have never appeared happier. And everyone is getting along. What would we make of this in our churches today? How many of us would use those same standards and say, well, that church must be doing great? The tithes are rolling in. People are singing and they're, they're proclaiming and, 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 and they're unified. Things seem to be going well. Yet there is a great problem. God is not being rightfully and truthfully worshipped. God's name is being covered over with filth and sin. There's a huge lesson for us today. There are many things that we can celebrate, but that we cannot centralize. There are many things that we can celebrate in the local church, but we best not centralize. It can be a good thing to celebrate gracious giving. It's a dangerous thing to centralize it. It can be a good thing to celebrate great singing, but it is dangerous to centralize it. The truth is, a cult could have both those things and do them better. But they're not glorifying and bringing honor to the name of God. The success of a church cannot be tied to these realities. Instead, it must be seen through the faithfulness of God's revealed word. The faithfulness to the revealed Word of God. And this includes centralizing what Scripture centralizes, and that's Jesus. It's one thing that we want to make sure that we're doing here at First Baptist, that Christ is the center of all that we do. Then we talked about the transition from uh, the transition to the Gospel Project curriculum that we're starting out with the Sunday school. One of the biggest draws of 
doing that and why we're doing that is because it makes much of Christ. We can have kids leaving this, growing up at, at First Baptist and leaving and looking good at the, on the outside, looking respectable, knowing Bible facts, but never impacted by the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. If they are not impacted by Jesus, we have failed regardless of how good the other things look. Many things that we should celebrate and we can celebrate, but let's not centralize them. What's the result of this false worship? They're worshiping this image that they have made, (laughs) profaning what God had just said of, this is how you worship me. And they said, no, this is how we want to do it. And it's it's looking good. and, and, And so, therefore, it must be right. No, what happens when they falsely worship? Let's look at verse 6. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They rose up to play. This is a figure of speech for perverse sexual activity. The pagans would often have orgies associated with their worship. And now we have the people of God who are called to be distinct, who are called to be different, worshiping like the pagans and in turn living like the pagans. They became what they worshiped. Their worship affected the way that they lived. Listen to Psalm 135 as it tells of this truth. Psalm 135, verses 15 to 20. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. Let me repeat that. Those who make them become like them so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. They became what they worshipped. So the truth is, if you become what you worship, what are you worshipping? Whatever captures your heart will begin to shape it. What captures your heart? Was your answer God alone? Sometimes we know the right things to say and we might think we want to worship God alone, but what we are becoming reveals that our heart is actually worshiping something else. So perhaps a better question is, what are you becoming like? Perhaps right now, in your seat, you should repent of the idols that you've made in your own life. Things that you have placed more value in than God himself. Things that are shaping your affections. What is it? Well, they want to approach God on their own terms with an idol, without curtains, without a priest, and God almost gives them what they want. For many of us, we think God giving us what we want would be terrific. 
But often, God giving us what we want is a form of discipline or wrath. Sam Elbury says it like this, We see God's wrath in this, that he gives us what we want. Approach God without a mediator. Approach God without the curtains. Approach God without proper worship. It doesn't end well. Yet God doesn't give them what they want. Why? Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I make a great nation out of you, Moses. So the people are forgetting Moses. Oh, what's his name? That guy that once let us out. He, is, he must have deserted us. He doesn't care about us. So let us make an idol and worship God through that. Very commands that he had given us were violating. The result of that should be death. And yet this same person that they say doesn't care about us, oh, what's his name? We don't have time. We've run out of patience with him. He is in the presence of God. And look at verse 11. But Moses. But Moses. Scene two is Moses interceding for the people on the mountain. They forget Moses, but he remembers them. Verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them in the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. In all this land I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. So, oh, what's his name? Is there in the presence of God pleading for the people? Their mindset might have been well, he's so mountain minded right now, he's no valley good. But he is on the mountain pleading with God for them. While they are still rejecting Moses, he is pleading for them. Well, Moses' appeal is composed of one question, three reasons, and a desired outcome. It's structured with a question first, followed by two reasons, and then the desired result, and finally, a final reason. What's the question? Why does your wrath burn hot against the people? And the first appeal is this. It's embedded in the question, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. 
His appeal is these are your people who you've chosen, who you delivered. It was you who rescued them. I like how we see in in verse 7 it says, uh, go down to your people. Parents understand that. If your your child does something bad, uh, they're your spouse's child. And if they do something well, they're your child. And so here we see the Lord say to Moses, go down to your people. And Moses' appeal is to turn those words and place them back and say, no, God, they're your people. You're the one who rescued them. You're the one who brought them out. Remember what you have done. Because the first appeal is saying, you are the one. It is your great power that brought this about. And the second appeal is this. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them on the mountains and to consume them in the face of the earth? So his second appeal is, it's all about your name. It's all about your glory, God. I want your name to be glorified among the nations. So while the people are busy taking the name of God in vain with their false worship, Moses is pleading on behalf of God's great name. I want your name to be glorified. I want your name to be respected. I care what others think. And here's the desired outcome. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Don't do it. Don't consume them. I know they deserve it. You're in every right but don't do it. The mercy of Moses as he pleads. And the third appeal, remember Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses appeals to the covenant that God made with his people and in doing so, he lists Three names. The last time these three were mentioned is when God told Moses to rescue his people. Remember that incident? And Moses said, Ah, not me, God. God was coming to Moses saying, My people will be rescued, and you're the instrument that I'm doing. And Moses says, I don't know, I have speech problems and, and things and God's saying, no, this is going to take place. And so what is Moses appealing to here is the very mercy and grace of God himself. And we see the change from verse 7 where it says, go down to your people, and verse 14 where it says, the Lord relented from the disaster which he had spoken of, bringing on his people. This was a God-centered appeal. Moses wasn't linking his arguments to the accomplishments of the people. Listen, this was not, hey, these people are kind of good, God. They have their good moments. Don't destroy them. God, you are a merciful God. I desire for your name to be lifted high among the nations. His entire argument is based on the character of God, not the works of the people. 
their hope is tied to something outside of themselves, their hope is tied to God. The people could not get out of this instance thinking, oh, we were spared because we are so good. No, their mediator was pleading, spare them because you are so merciful. This wasn't about them. It was about God. And yet, how many times can we as Christians, when things are going wrong in our life, when things are messed up in the darkest hour, we somehow appeal to ourselves. How could you do this to me? Look how great I am. Moses understood it was the grace of God alone. And what we have to understand here is this is not Moses equals uh, mercy and God equals vengeful. This is not God or Moses twisting God's arm and saying, you need to be merciful here. His argument itself is based on the merciful actions of God. The merciful character of God. And what we see here is that the mediator has the same heart as his God. The same heart that was, that was moved to rescue the people in the first place is now evident in Moses. You see, the people were becoming what they worshipped. But we see Moses taking on the characteristics of his God in his appeal. The mercy of God. We have to ask, well, in this situation, was this God changing his mind? We talked last week that God is not a pantser. And what we said by that is a pantser is somebody who writes a story by the seat of their pants. Not quite sure how it'll work out, but maybe he'll tie things together and it'll, it'll look all right. We contrast that with somebody who knows what he's doing, how everything, even in the beginning, is pointing to something else. We said God knows what he's doing, and we knew what he was doing, the construction of the tabernacle, how it pointed to Jesus And we see here this is not God being persuaded or him changing his mind. Here's a couple problems if this is God changing his mind. If God changes, we can't trust his promises. If God changes, he's not really sovereign. He's not really all-knowing. Even more than that, there's clear teachings in Malachi 3.6, James 1.17. God doesn't change. Numbers 23, 19 puts it like this, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. But we often see human-like qualities given to God so that we might understand what he is like. Scripture talks about God having eyes and feet, but we know that he is spirit. This is the kind of language that God graciously gives so that we can understand him a little bit better. God is bigger, greater than we could ever imagine. Probably more than all that, even in this immediate context, we see that 
Moses is using the unchanging character and nature of God to make his case. Listen to how one person puts this. This prayer appeals to the consistency of God's own nature, and it is grounded in the reliability of God's self-revelation in his revealed will. Don't get the idea that God is changing his mind here, or altering from one thing to another, he's, that he's in a huff, and that Moses is having to argue with an unstable, unreliable God. No, in all of Moses' prayer depends on God being reliable, being consistent with the way that he acts. If you look at the language of repent or change his mind in the Old Testament, you will find an absolutely frightening consistency with God. So many people will make this, well, God will do this, and then he'll flip-flop, and he won't do this. No. Every time this language is used in the Old Testament, do you know how it's used? It's used either to indicate God relenting from his punishment for those who've repented, or relenting from his blessing for those who presume on his grace in the covenant. It's used that way every single time it's employed. In other words, God is as constant as a northern star, and you can bank on how he is going to respond when people either presume his grace or they are repentant. When they're repentant, he is looking for an excuse to bless them. When they're presumptuous, watch out. And that's exactly what's happening So why is this place why is this taking place? Well it's taking place because the people are understanding very clearly they need a mediator. They're not going to escape this instance, this encounter right here without somebody mediating on their behalf, without somebody speaking to God for them. God is willing to start over with Moses, and yet the mediator steps in. And here's another truth. Although God's plan is set, he still uses the prayers of his people in that great plan. I was going to give the people what they deserved, but the pleading of Moses. It doesn't mean that God, Moses forced God into a new plan of actions, but it does mean that Moses' intercession was a necessary part of what God was doing. We cannot pit our responsibility against God's absolute sovereignty. The Bible doesn't. And this is great news for us as praying people. God used the pleadings of Moses and he has been using the prayers of his people ever since. Moses pleads and God responds. But his pleading is based on the character and the nature of who God is not on what they have done. Let's continue. Then Moses turned down and went from the mountain and the two tablets, the testimony in his hand, and the tablets were written on both sides, and the front and the back they were written. And the tablets were the work of God, the writing of, the, the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise in the war of the camp, but he said, it is not the sound of victory or shouting or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as they came near that camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people drink it. 
Next we see Moses comes down from the mountain. We see they reject God. We'll later see that Moses asks to be rejected. So God relents from this coming disaster, and we see Moses coming down the mountain. But as he's coming down, some time during that descent, Joshua joins him, and Joshua's like, what's that noise that I hear down in the camp? Is it, is it a war that's taking place, or these war chants? What, what's taking place here? Moses knows. What's taking place down there is gross idolatry. Scripture calls it great sin. In the culture of the day, that the great sin was referring, that same word was referring to adultery. And here, the people of God were committing adultery on their spiritual husband. They were turning aside to something else. And when Moses sees it himself, we see Moses once again taking on the character of God. Not only do we see him being merciful, but now we see him rightfully being angry at the sin that's taking place. And he smashes those Ten Commandments, the, things that were, the very things that were written by the finger of God, are smashed into pieces. And even more than Moses' power in throwing them down, this is symbolizing that the very people who were given the commands of God to live by, to be distinct, were the ones who destroyed them by their disobedience. They lie broken. And what we find out is if you break the commands of God, you deserve to be broken yourself. Judgment comes, and a rightful judgment. And we see Moses take this calf that they made and melt and grind it, and grind it up. We're saying, how do those two things go together? Melting down and grinding up is, 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 a, is a play on words, basically saying he utterly destroyed the idol. And he has them drink it. Earlier on, God told the people, if you encounter an idol, here's what you should do. You should totally destroy it. And the people were the ones who had made it. And Moses does what needs to be done. He gets rid of the idols in the midst of God's people. Aaron says, oh, I'll make it. Moses says, no, I'm going to destroy it regardless of what happens to me. This needs to be done away with. And so he destroys this idol and has, have, have them drink it. And so they're drinking in their own sin, their own condemnation. This might be an allusion to numbers when it talks about the guilty party in an adulterous relationship drinking in certain dust to reveal their guilt. But either way, we see people who are meant to be distinct because of the law become law destroyers. And then Moses confronts Aaron. Why did this people, <clears throat> what did this people do that you've brought such a great sin upon them? 
And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn. You know how the people are. They are sent on evil. For they said to me, Let's make gods that go before us. As for this Moses, the one who brought us up, we do not know what's become of him. So I said, Let any of you take gold off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and boop, out came this calf. Do we see the similarities here with the garden? How did this happen? Oh, it was their fault. What took place? Excuse making. Different interpretations of this. Was this some kind of saying early on that was talking about a miraculous occurrence? Was this... um, Was this... um, did Aaron really mean that? I think this is Aaron saying, I, I don't really know what to say. It's an, an expression that either reveals, hey, just try to buy this. Moses doesn't respond, so it's pretty obvious that that was a knuckleheaded thing to say. Right. It's like your kid having cookie crumbs all over his face, and how did that happen? I don't know, they just got there. Embarrassment, guilt, I don't really know what to say. There's really not much I can say. The, the idol's there. I was responsible. And then what we see is that judgment is necessary. Verse 25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on their side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of the Lord. And that day about 3,000 men of the Lord fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained to the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you. What we find in this section is that judgment is necessary when sin takes place. Who are these people? The unrepentant ones. Who is on the Lord's side? The question is posed. Sons of Levi, step up. We are. We are. Then judgment must take place. Judgment comes for idolaters. What's shocking here is not that some died, but that any lived. Judgment was necessary. We see in verse 30, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, and they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I had spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in that day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. 
Then the Lord sent a plague to the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. The mediator so identified with his people that if they will be punished, he wants to be punished alongside them. Not only does he intercede for them, but he identifies with them even to death. Where Aaron was unwilling to stand up for what is right in the face of his people, Moses not only stands up and destroys the idol, but offers his life for their sin. Here's the truth. Moses is willing, but not able. Moses can destroy the physical idol in their midst, but he cannot change the hearts of those who worship the idol. He can desire to pay for their sin, but he is not a perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the better mediator, is willing and able. Jesus offers his life as a perfect sacrifice. He delights to change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And he does not give up on his people until they are made like him by the Holy Spirit. Here's the truth. Our final scene, shortly. You are here. Jesus is seated on high. You turn away from God, but Jesus, he is always near God. He is perfect, though continuously we rebel. Jesus is doing what we failed to do, and he remains blameless even as we fail. You forget Jesus. He remembers you. How many times is our life, Jesus becomes, oh, what's his name? Oh, that guy who saved me. As we live lives contrary to who he is. But like Moses, he is pleading on behalf of God's mercy. But unlike Moses, his body bears the marks of the greatest display of that mercy. You reject God, Jesus asks to be rejected. He is able to plead our case because he bore the punishment our sins deserve. He drank the bitter cup of our sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is true for all who repent and believe. The hope that was given through the mediator Moses is only a shadow of the glorious hope that we have. Jesus did what Moses could not do. Moses appealed to the mercy of God through a bold intercession. Jesus made it possible through his humble crucifixion. In our rebellion against the Most High God, In the people of God's rebellion, it was game over but Moses. In our rebellion against the Most High God, it was game over but Jesus. And this is true for all who repent and believe. What marvelous, wonderful grace. We deserve punishment, yet he took it in our place. And he is with us right now, pleading for us. What great hope. What amazing grace. Let's pray together. 
Dear Father, I thank you so much for the wonderful and beautiful hope that we have. That Moses, as he pleads with you, as he pleads based on your merciful and wonderful character, he points ahead to the one who pleads for us. The one who pleads because it's been paid, and it's been paid by his blood. We thank you for the precious gift of Jesus and your amazing grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.